This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Here is your host, Jeff Voigt. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We're live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time. I'm Jeff Voigt, Principal of Medical Device Consultants at Ridgewood, a firm dedicated to evaluating the clinical and cost effectiveness of medical technologies. I publish frequently on this topic in the peer-reviewed medical literature. I'm also an editor of one of the leading peer-reviewed cost effectiveness journals. Lastly, I'm a 1985 graduate of the Wharton Healthcare Management Program. If you're interested in joining in the conversation today, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Today we'll be discussing the recently passed Chronic Care Act, which is part of the bipartisan Budget Act of two thousand eighteen. Within the Chronic Care Act are provisions in caring for dual eligibles, meaning Medicare and Medicaid eligible, for those with multiple chronic conditions, such as diabetes and heart failure also called the special needs population. This population, which totals approximately 11 million people, or about 3% of the population, consumes over $350 billion per year in medical expenses, or about $31,800 per person. This is also approximately 10% of the total health care spend in the U.S. annually. To put this in perspective, the average yearly health care expenditures in the U.S. per person are approximately $10,500. Therefore, the special needs population is three times more costly than what the average person in the U.S. Uh, spends. The recent legislation that passed permanent uh, that passed permanently auth- uh, that recently passed authorizes Medicare Advantage dual eligible special needs plans to care for this population. This new law also loosens the definition of primary health related benefits and provides for additional supplemental benefits that have a reasonable expectation of improving or maintaining the health or function of a chronically uh, chronically ill enrollee. Embedded in these plans are supplemental benefits, which are not direct medical expenses, but which affect the health of patients and can include nutrition, transportation, housing, clothing, their neighborhood, and social support mechanisms. These types of expenditures can uh, be described as social determinants of health. I have four guests today with me to discuss dual eligible special needs plans and their effect on this population in future directions, and possibly the application of non-medical coverage for health, such as social determinants, to the general population. The show is going to be split up into two half-hour segments. The first half hour will be dealing with the policy around special needs populations, and we'll talk with a vendor addressing one of the social determinants of health. The second half of the hour, we'll be dealing with health plan implementation of programs around dual-eligible special needs. My guests, Cheryl Phillips, MD. Dr. Phillips is the president and CEO of the Special Needs Plans Alliance, a national leadership association for special needs and Medicare-Medicaid plans serving vulnerable uh, populations and adults. Dr. Phillips is a past president of the American Geriatric Society, an organization representing healthcare professionals committed to improving the health of America's seniors, and is also a past president of the American Medical Directors Association, a physician organization for long-term care. Dr. Phillips serves on multiple technical advisory boards for chronic care, nursing home quality, and home and community-based services, and has provided multiple testimonies to the U.S. Congress. Cheryl, welcome. My second guest, Catherine McPherson, is Vice President of Product Strategy and Development and Chief Nutrition Officer for Mom's Meals Nourish Care, Pure Foods LLC. Previously, Catherine was Vice President of Medication Adherence and Immunizations at Walgreens, led healthcare product strategy at WebMD, and managed health and wellness programs for Ceridian, the National Institutes of Health, and the American Institute for Cancer Research. Catherine is also a registered dietitian. Catherine, welcome. Thank you. Okay, so let's let's get into the kind of the meat of the matter here. Um, Dr. Phillips, tell me a little bit about the Special Needs Alliance and what are you doing? Thank you. Yes, I'd love to. So the Special Needs Plan Alliance is a national leadership organization. We're a nonprofit, 501c6, representing 
um, specialized managed care plans, which include the three types of special needs plans that you made reference to. And we'll talk mainly about those special needs plans for the duly eligible individuals, but there's also special needs plans for individuals with serious life-threatening chronic conditions known as C-SNPs, and there's also an institutional level of care or I-SNP for those that are nursing home level of care. And then we also have as members some of the demonstration programs that are looking at Medicare, Medicaid integration, and there's some 10 states around the country that are participating in these demonstrations. So that is the Special Needs Plan Alliance, and we have a mission and a focus to improve care through policy, regulation, and system delivery change for uh, the most vulnerable, high-risk, high-cost populations. And that's, in essence, what the special needs plans are targeting. Got it. And so uh, if, you, if you add up all the, let's call it the C-SNP, the D-SNP, and the I-SNP, how many, how many people is that t- in total? So there are about 2.5 million enrolled in all three SNPs, special needs plan types together. Mm-hmm. And our alliance, our members represent over one6 million enrolled lives. We call them beneficiaries or enrollees, but I think for the purpose of this call, let's just call them people. Okay, sounds good. And Catherine, tell me a little bit about Pure Foods and what its mission is and how how you're involved in in this uh, dual eligible um, uh, situation. Sure. Thanks, Jeff. Mm -hmm. Um, Pure Foods is a private company. We're headquartered uh, just outside of Des Moines, Iowa. We do business as Mom's Meals Nourish Care. Uh, we've been in business for almost 20 years now, and we are, our mission is to be the leading healthcare provider of home-delivered nutrition solutions that nourish health and preserve independence. Mm-hmm. And we do that primarily through three program types. So we have long-term care support, where we deliver our meals to enable uh, individuals to age in place in their communities, live at home uh, for as long as possible. Um, but and, and we've done that for, for most of our 20-year history. Um, most recently, in the past five years, we've supported uh, our health plan partners around um, caring for their members after discharge. So we have post-discharge meals. And then most recently, chronic care meals. So uh, those are, you know, some of the um, new programs that we have in place with uh, some, some of our DSNIP partners. Um, and just, you know, uh, our meals, to, to mention, they are uh, fully prepared, so members don't have to shop, cook, um, prepare anything. And they are refrigerated, not frozen, and they are condition-specific. So we have meals for individuals who need um, support for their diabetes, heart-friendly meals, lower sodium if they have heart failure, uh, renal if they have end-stage renal disease, pureed, um, gluten-free they have celiac, so um, meals that are appropriate for caring for individuals, uh, no matter what their uh, serious condition. All right. So, h- how do you how do you uh, find these people? Are you're connected, obviously, with various health plans. Is that right? Right. Yes. Okay. And um, and so you'll you're part of the coordination of care once they're discharged from an institution and, and they want to stay in the home. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, so it's, you know, the, the mechanism by which the referral for a meals program, um, you know, changes, it, it, it's based on, you know, the kind of how the benefit gets operationalized at that health plan. Um, so it could be through case management, it could be through, um, you know, a list of, of members who are discharging, um, but, but typically it's, it's through case management. Right. And, uh, okay, so, so how do you market yourself? Okay. Um. So we um, we work extensively on uh, communication with um, you know uh, health plans. So mm-hmm. we work through uh, you know um, various conferences and national organizations like AHEF, um, MHPA, um, you know to, to reach uh, the audiences that that might be in need of our services. And and we also do a lot of just direct networking with with health plans. Um, so in addition to health plans, you know we we also work with um, on the aging side. Um, you know, area agencies on aging and um, directly with states as well. Yeah, and uh, just one last question, and I'm going to get I'm going to get back mm-hmm. to Cheryl. 
Um, so, um, what's the what's the um, what are the growth drivers for you from a from a business standpoint? Where are you finding a lot of the the, the business? Sure, I, I think number one is you know the aging of the population. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, silver tsunami, uh, you know, taking care of of aging adults. So that plays right into the uh, Medicare Advantage population. Um, you know that that is really growing. Um, so that's number one. But then, um, you know, if you think about healthcare in general, and, and we do support plans both on the Medicaid and the Medicare Advantage side, where we see the most growth right now is on the Medicare Advantage side. Um, so, you know, because of the policy changes we'll, we'll talk about today as part of the Chronic Care Act, and as well as uh, new changes in the CMS call letter uh, for 2019, you know, increased flexibility there as well. Um, around, you know, targeting benefits for members with chronic conditions and also, you know, broadening the definition of what a supplemental benefit is. We're really seeing um, a lot of desire for innovation on the Medicare Advantage side, and that is to, you know, ensure that um, the right supports are there for members, um, but also that costs are controlled as, you know, sort of the the membership really does grow uh, in the future. Right. So, Cheryl, Tell me about the Chronic Care Act and, and why is it so important, and, and is this something that is uh, transformative in, in your mind? I absolutely believe it's transformative, and I'll focus on, so the Chronic Care Act is a very broad act with a number of elements. Things that for us in the special needs plans is it gave permanency with um, conditions, so plans don't just get a um, ticket to ride, if you will, indefinitely. But it gave a pathway for permanency, and why that matters is that for this population of dually eligibles that requires both a health plan and Medicare, Medicaid, or CMS, and the states to contract, when they had authorizations for just two or three years at a time, not Mm -hmm. much got done. Mm -hmm. Now there's a pathway for permanency that in and of itself is so significant because that now allows states, CMS and the health plans to think in a longitudinal way to integrate Medicare and Medicaid for these vulnerable populations in very specific ways. Right. Um, so give me a give me a, a typical. Um, let's just deal with the the dual eligible. Uh, sure. Snips. And, what, 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 tell me a little bit about them and 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 what their lifestyles like and and what what kind of things are are, are we doing to help them. So um, I think the very most important thing is to say there is not a typical dually eligible individual. Hmm. Sometimes we call them duals, which I think is a little bit pejorative because people don't identify themselves as dually eligible. But there's two, I think, big bucket categories that we need to think about. The younger person who's disabled and thus has Medicare because of disability and Medicaid because of poverty. Mm-hmm. And the elder, frail elder, often with three or more chronic conditions, over half of our duly eligibles have three or more serious chronic conditions. So this, these are sort of two bivariate populations. But what becomes some common themes throughout, the younger disabled population does have typically a higher burden of behavioral health needs, Mm-hmm. So one of the important issues is how do we integrate in behavioral health. But we touched on the social determinants, and I absolutely agree with Catherine. The social determinants become a common denominator of the duly eligible population because, remember, they are either um, medically needy and they are of low income to qualify for Medicaid. So access to stable housing access to reliable nutrition, ability to manage transportation. If you have three or four multiple chronic conditions, and I, as a doctor, keep sending you appointment reminders, it doesn't do you diddly squat (laughs) if you can't get out of your apartment and can't get to the appointment. Is that a medical term, by the way, diddly squat? Diddly squat, yes. yes. It's it's an ICD-10 code now. It is. It's great. But but you get the point that yeah. um, we can, you know, give lists of meds, we can give lots of instructions, but if we aren't addressing those core basic needs of people's ability to function in the, where they live, then the medical stuff gets lost, and what becomes the default 
whether it's poor nutrition, limited access with transportation, inadequate housing, if you are seriously ill, the place where you do get all of that is in the emergency room in the hospital. And that doesn't serve the person well, and it's very expensive for our health care system. Yeah, so, so when, yeah, okay, uh, thank you. Um, so help me understand how you end up identifying all of these social determinant needs. I mean, it, there's got to be some, the case, is it the case manager who's kind of the lead on this? Is that right? So one, yeah, so one of the things that's unique about a special needs plan is you must have care coordinators and case managers working directly with the individual because you don't get to the heart of these without um, understanding the person. Even mail-out surveys or phone calls often don't get to the heart of it because either you can't find people or they don't answer or they really don't want to tell you things because they don't know what you're going to do with the information. So um, special needs plans have the ability through the case manager or care coordinator to really get to know individuals and understand and thus start to track their social determinants of health needs. That's the big word for all of these things that make life work. Got it. So I'm Jeff Foyt, and you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. Today we're talking about the dual eligible population or special needs population, which accounts for over $350 billion a year in annual spending. My guests, Dr. Cheryl Phillips, CEO of the Special Needs Alliance, and Catherine McPherson, VP of Product Strategy at Pure Foods. Oh, am I saying that right, Catherine? Pure Foods? Is that right? Pure Foods. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sounds right. sounds Thanks, good. Jeff. So, um, Let's let's go back. I, I know um, there are private insurers that are kind of managing the Medicare Advantage uh, aspect of this, but are private plans actually tipping their toe into the water on this as well with some of their enrollees? Are you seeing that at all? Well, we may be, and Catherine made reference to the new supplemental benefits. So for the first time, we're now able to, through Medicare Advantage plans, add on benefits. And I think that some of um, these Medicaid Advantage plans may start looking at are there supplemental benefits like medically related transportation Uh or medically related nutrition, um, something that Catherine was sharing with us. I think the challenge we have yet to see because this just came out from CMS and plans are in the process of submitting their bids, their estimates of costs for the next year. Are these really going to be substantially targeted to um, high-risk, vulnerable populations, or are they going to be more marketing kind of tools? Hmm. I'm delighted Mm -hmm. with supplemental benefits. The flexibility is essential. I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. The difference between a general MA Medicaid or Medicare Advantage plan and a special needs plan is that a special needs plan has a targeted high-risk vulnerable population by its very enrollment, right. whereas a general MA plan may not. So how these supplemental benefits are going to be used is yet to be seen. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious as to, and, and, and I'm going to ask you guys, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, so you have the medical side and then you have the social determinant side. What do you think the mix is from a spend standpoint for those two buckets in, in general? Uh, Catherine, you got a guess? Um, well, if you if you look at the CMS uh, call letter, the language actually says that um, the new supplemental benefits cannot be for social needs alone. So, you know, there really is this mix mm-hmm. of uh, medical need plus social need, and, and that is a requirement. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think when you think about something like like food, um, that hasn't traditionally been looked at in the past as medical spend. But, uh, you know, with the strong evidence base that's been growing around the impact that nutrition can have on um, clinical outcomes, um, as well as, you know, cost of care, reducing readmissions, improving hemoglobin A1C for those with uncontrolled diabetes, et cetera. With that evidence base, uh, you know, the acceptance is really growing that this should be part of everyone's integrated plan of care. Right. Nutrition and, should be a component. Yeah. And Cheryl, do you have a guess as to what, what the, kind of the mix is? is I'm, my thinking is it's probably going to be, as time goes on, pretty pretty skewed towards social, social Well, potentially, and that's one of the concerns that the states have. So I'm going to answer it hmm. a little bit more vaguely. Part of the problem is you can't compare Medicaid costs because they vary from state to state per um, 
per enrollee or by population because eligibility is different and covered benefits are different. And one of the frustrations that the states have, right now um, medical cost spending is definitely shifted into the Medicare side for lots of reasons, both good and bad. Mm -hmm. And as states spend more money on social determinants, the Medicare costs go down. But the states are saying, um, excuse me, um, you know, we just put in all this infrastructure and support. So the, the goal of the integrated plans is how do you look at um, probably the best example is a model of care called PACE, Program of All-Inclusive Care of the Elderly. And in that case, they get both the Medicare and the Medicaid dollars, and they do the full scope of care, including in-home personalized care, nutrition, meals, transportation, mm-hmm. all such things, and all the medical costs. And they spend end up spending more on the Medicaid side, but they offset the Medicare costs, but then they get to use those Medicare costs for care. So the hmm. states are saying, wow, we want to shift Medicaid to home and community-based services because we know that institutional care or nursing home care is expensive, and there's some people who don't need to be there. But how much money do the states put in to offset the uh, Medicare costs? And that's part of the attraction of this alignment of Medicare and Medicaid under managed care. So I just make sure I'm, I'm clear on this. Is So the, some of the states are getting some of the Medicare dollars back to help them with Medicaid based on the only lowering? Only under a PACE model, only, only under, under a very PACE. select model. And, yeah, and, and, right? how, and how big is that population? That population is probably just under 60,000 enrollees in the whole country. Right. So it started in San Francisco was on lock. Um, I was a chief medical officer there. It's now replicated in 39 states, but it's relatively small, and there's a whole set of reasons why it is. But that's probably the best example of integrated financing. And so when you say, you know, who spends more on what and who's saving money, it really comes down to whose wallet are you dipping into and Mm -hmm. whose um, bank account are you saving for. Right. So let's talk a little bit more about the integration of Medicare and Medicaid. You talked about the financial side, but what what other issues are there as it relates to the integration of both of these programs? Um, and Catherine, from your side, help, help me understand that, and then Cheryl, please weigh in. You bet. Sure. So, so where there is not integration, so for example, we do partner with some health plans where you know we have programs available for their members on both the Medicaid and the Medicare Advantage side. And so we start by helping you know, the plan um, plans members to understand what benefits are available under which plan. Um, let's take the example of someone who is receiving um, long-term services and support, so they're getting meals delivered to their home to help them, you know, avoid uh, institutionalization. And uh, they do experience uh, an inpatient uh, admission. Uh, you know, if they are duly eligible, they are discharged, and they may be eligible for um, meals after discharge. Uh, and so those meals are being paid for on the Medicare Advantage side. And so, you know, being a vendor on both sides, um, we have one, uh, you know, patient record or member record for, for each of our clients. And um, we're able to, you know, p- put a pause on their long-term meals. And, uh, you know, then we're, we're going to claims bill for, for the meals on the, the Medicare Advantage side. Um, and then, you know, after those meals are, are complete and the, the benefit is, is used, um, then we're going to transfer back over to the long-term side. So we also help our health plans to um, sometimes, uh, you know, we're working with completely different teams uh, within a health plan on the Medicaid and the Medicare side. So we bring those teams together. Um, we like to train all the case managers as well um, to help them, you know, under there may be different sets of case managers um, caring for members. So we like to try and also, um, you know, bring teams together that, that may not know about the benefit that's available on the other side. So, right. um, so that's, that's a role that we can play as a partner. So so you have, uh, I don't know, if nutritionists that are out there or salespeople that are, I mean, part of the, it sounds like a big part of what they have to do is to educate uh, the plans on what your offering is and, and, and how it can benefit them. Is that is that right? Uh, you know, so we have account managers who are going to go in and work with case management to make, yep. you know, because having the benefit is one thing, right? And and you can have your, your folks who are on the product side uh, designing the benefit and your actuaries deciding what the utilization is going to be. But operationally, uh, operationalizing that benefit is, you know, kind of that next step to make it uh, meaningful and, you know, um, Dr. Phillips, you made the comment, you know, is it going to be more of a marketing play or is this something that's really going to have an impact for members? 
And, you know, that difference comes in, did you operationalize this? Is it integrated into your clinical workflows? Does it become part of your integrated plan of care for your members? And, and case management is really where that happens. So we do work with, through our account management team um, to identify how to, you know, integrate a meal's um, benefit into what, uh, you know, those case managers are already doing with members from the assessment, you know, to the checklist, um, you know, to, to the reporting and the and the benchmarks and metrics that the case management team is is trying to meet. Yeah. So, Catherine, real quickly, um, how do you measure the success? I mean, you're looking at benchmarks. What are the, what are those benchmarks? Help us understand a little bit about that as to whether you're being successful or not. Sure. So, um, you know, we work with health plans on what they are trying to achieve as their partner. So, we provide data typically on you know utilization, but we're also um, you know working with that plan to measure things like um, customer set or member satisfaction, net promoter score. Um, it could be a quality measure that the health plan is trying to put into place. So uh, DSNPs are required to have a, a QIP or quality improvement program. Um, that may be around something like readmissions reduction. And so we're able to, you know, provide data back to the plan mm-hmm. um, on their members who received meals, and then they're able to look at claims um, and, and need to determine what the reduction in, in um readmission was. And sometimes we do that analysis on behalf of our health plan partners as well. So it's really driven by, you know, what that plan is trying to achieve. And, um, you know, we're, we're able to collaborate on a lot of different metrics. So Cheryl, I'm going to give you the last couple of minutes here. Um, sure. I, w- I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the, uh, the challenges in integrating Medicare and Medicaid. You talked on the financial side. What are the things that you're seeing that are a challenge, but, you know, you're, you're starting to address and you're seeing some successes? Um, so multiple challenges, and um, I would say it starts with aligned enrollment. If you are a beneficiary who has Medicare and Medicaid, you have two separate plans. You have two separate cards. You have two separate enrollment times. You have two separate sets of benefits. You may have two separate care coordination teams. Hmm. Um, you may have – so nothing it's, – it's even more than financial – because to the beneficiary, without integration and without starting with aligned enrollment, you have a spider web of services and things that our people are doing, but they're not coordinating. As we are looking to moving along into this integration pathway, aligned enrollment is very important, aligned care coordination, aligned benefits, so that um, the Medicare and the Medicaid portions are understanding what the person needs what they're getting, but more importantly, what they're not getting and they should be getting. And then how does that information flow between the medical and the social um, services and support side? So to me, that is the process of integration, and it starts with aligned enrollment. It also starts with um, state Medicaid departments and the health plans and the Medicare plans and the Medicaid plans all speaking together. So there's some alignment that needs to happen. But it's not always um, a shared savings or a financial alignment. Mm -hmm. It can be under some program models, but even just starting with aligned enrollment and information exchange so that ultimately it's needs driven by the person, not the set of benefits that the MA plan is doing and the set of benefits that the managed Medicaid plan is doing, but that they're looking at what does the person need. And frankly, when you're in fee-for-service for both, it's even less coordinated. So managed care sets a platform for integration, but then as we can start to move the plans together with aligned enrollment, aligned education materials, aligned grievance and appeals process, um, then we start to see what looks like integration to the person. Yeah, so it sounds to me like, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, getting the resources to communicate with each other, and they may, it sounds like there's some overlap in this, and it sounds like there's certainly certainly efficiencies that can be had by um, making sure that people are communicating correctly, and, and uh, ultimately you're going to end up with a, 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 you know, a business model that, um, you know, you s- squeeze some of the costs out of it and um, um, ultimately is going to be successful. Is that, is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Good. So the efficiencies are not insignificant. Yeah. Having access to a population with um, aligned enrollment makes it easier for the health plans as well. 
and then there become efficiencies for the state, for the Medicaid services, as well as on the uh, Medicare Advantage side. Very good. So we need to take a break, uh, and we'll be back in a couple minutes. But I wanted to thank Dr. Cheryl Phillips, CEO of the Special Needs Alliance, and Catherine McPherson, who's the VP of Product Strategy at Pure Foods, for their time today. Uh, very enjoyable conversation. Thank you for the information. Um, we'll be back in a couple. We'll be talking with a couple of health care plans about uh, the DSNP population. Thank you both very much for, for your time today. The second half of the hour, we're going to talk with a couple of healthcare plans that are doing some really innovative things around working with this patient population. And I'd like to introduce my guests. Uh, and if you would like to call in, have a question, it's 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 7866. So um, my guests for the second half of the hour, or half hour, are Kevin Park, MD. Dr. Park is the Chief Medical Officer for CARE Wisconsin. Prior to CARE Wisconsin, Dr. Park served as a National Medical Director for a special needs health care plan organization that served 13 major markets. He's, a, he's board certified in internal medicine, a Harvard Medical School graduate, and magna cum laude graduate of Harvard College, and an editorial board member for the Journal of Healthcare Quality and a nationally recognized expert on medication adherence. Dr. Park, welcome. Thank you. And my next guest is uh, John Lovelace. John is president of government programs at UPMC Individual Advantage and president of UPMC for You, a managed care organization that serves medical assistance and Medicare Advantage special needs plans, special need plan recipients in 40 counties in Pennsylvania. John is also chief program officer at Community Care Behavioral Health Organization, a behavioral health uh, managed care organization that is part of the UPMC. University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Insurance Services Division. Uh, community care provides behavioral health coverage for more than 900,000 Medicaid beneficiaries in 36 Pennsylvania counties, as well as care coordination services in New York State. John, welcome. Oh, thank you. So um, let's talk a little bit about um, each of your particular um, plans itself. Kevin, if you can start and tell me a little bit about Care Wisconsin and what you're doing there. Yes. Uh, so Care Wisconsin uh, originally started in 1976 as, um, in Madison, Wisconsin, as the region's first adult day care center. And over the next uh, several decades, uh, grew to uh, serve uh, the frail elder population and then uh, people with disabilities. In 2005, we became a health maintenance organization, or HMO, and right now, um, in 2018, we serve uh, 12,000 individuals, all uh, with some kind of uh, challenge. Um, They are either um, elders with frailty um, or individuals with multiple chronic medical conditions or individuals with some kind of intellectual or um, uh, mental or physical disability. Mm -hmm. And because they all have some kind of challenge, um, we specialize in that, and therefore we we serve um, people with the kinds of challenges that were described in the first half of your show. Right. And and where do you typically care for these uh, patients? Is it in the home? Is it in in um, other types of uh, care uh, settings? Uh, most of them are in the home because mm. um, here in Wisconsin, uh, there was over the last decade, a decade and a half, um, a major effort to uh, um, to move uh, these individuals uh, away from the nursing home setting. So uh, do you find your state is unique in that regard? Uh, it is it is um, fairly exceptional, meaning meaning our level of nursing home um, placement is lower than the national average. And, and is it saving money ultimately having them in the home? It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So we you know we do have some unique programs where we will um, sometimes staff at uh, you know have programs where we have twenty uh, four hour care. Um, for individuals, but, obvi- but obviously that is more cost-effective than, than having someone in a nursing home long-term. Oh, very good. So, John, tell me a little bit about UPMC, and, and I know you're president of a couple of different organizations there. You wear a number of different hats, it sounds. 
I, I do. So UCMC is a large sort of actually global health enterprise. We have four major divisions. Um, insurance is one. Health services is a second. There's an international division and an enterprises division, which is kind of the technology advancement part of UPMC. Mm-hmm. In the insurance division, we have a whole suite of insurance products, including health insurance as well as supplemental insurances, and about 3.2 million members overall. Of those 3.2 million members, about 175,000 are Medicare Advantage enrollees. Uh, and of that group, about 26,000 are in the dual special needs plan that's Medicare Advantage, which we've had since 2006. So. Yeah, and, it, uh, it, we also have a small – I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, so it sounds like that's one of the bigger programs in the United States. Is that right? Yes, it, it's on the large side of, as, as yeah. dual SNPs go, yes. Oh, very good, yeah. And uh, we're happy actually to be a four-star dual SNP, which is also a rarity, to be uh, at the upper end of the quality spectrum as well. Wow, very good. So um, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the, the care coordination of uh, and, and, and help me understand, and, and I'm going to ask you to generalize here, and, it's, uh, and I'm sorry to do this, but you, you have, um, and I'll start with you, uh, Kevin, about uh, Care Wisconsin. You have a patient who's transitioning from, uh, you know, let's call it a more expensive care setting into the home. What are you doing? Uh, how are you getting that patient into the home? And um, what... what um, uh, are, are you having challenges with the integration of, 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 of getting you know, care from one setting to the next, or, or, or have you kind of figured that out? Help me understand that. Yes. So, so we have on our team typically uh, both a nurse and then a care manager often who is knowledgeable about what was described as the social determinants, uh, how to get an individual access to uh, financial supports, uh, nutrition, housing, uh, those kinds of, of social services. Mm-hmm. And even though we may not have contracts with those um, agencies, some sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, uh, they know how to um, get the individual access to uh, either free services or uh, governmental services and the the um, the care managers case managers will do an assessment figure out what the medical and social needs are and then do an inventory and a plan and then then over the next uh, one to six months then implement the plan uh, with the member with the individual and with with the medical team and other other agencies to get the individual the services that they need. So, so the case manager oversees all of this. How many? How many? Um, I'm going to call them enrollees or patients. Do they see at a time? How many can they handle? Yes. Well, that varies by program, but uh, to take one specific program that that I oversee, uh, it's typically for two uh, two case managers, uh, a caseload. Of one to fifty-five, one to fifty-five people. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? So, so there's a range. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. and and that can vary. So, uh-huh. um, it can be as high as one to eighty. Oh, okay, very good. Um, and and John, tell me a little bit about um, how you're integrating care from one expensive setting to the to the less expensive. Setting. Let's call it the home. Well, there are a couple of ways. This 2018 is the kickoff of Pennsylvania's move into managed long-term services and supports, which we have a contract for. It's Medicaid funding for um, community-based services and long-term stay nursing homes. It's built on, in Pennsylvania, a dual special needs plan platform. So we have, for some of our enrollees, we have Medicare responsibility as well as the Medicaid responsibility. So as Cheryl was talking about in the first half, the ability to align um, the Medicare and the Medicaid funding. A big thrust in this process is to both um, divert people from nursing, long-term nursing home placements, and for those people who are in nursing homes and would like to leave, to help people make a transition back into the community. And we have funding and responsibility to do both of those things. Um, Ninety-five in surveys, 95% of people um, have no interest in ending their life in a nursing home. Yeah. Um, but they do. Um, many people do because there isn't an option. And the ability, I think, to work quickly with, we have a health system, um, which is part of our general structure, the ability to work more closely aligned with the health system, with the Medicare funding, which pays for acute care, and the long-term funding, we can be much more effective around acting quickly, assessing needs comprehensively, and developing supportive treatment plans for people, um, treatment and, and supportive service plans for people in the community. 
There's so, quite a difference in PA between you know, in rural Pennsylvania, 80% of people who are nursing home eligible are in nursing homes. In the southeast, in Philadelphia area, it's only about 20% are in nursing homes oh, because cool. of resource development. Uh-huh. So um, help me understand. So I'm assuming there's some kind of a, you know, you have a case manager, but do you have people involved from the family? And how do you involve them in the process of care? And, and, and what, what, are, what are their responsibilities? And did they feel do they feel relieved because it sounds like they, they may have this responsibility, at least initially, that they have all these resources for them. Uh, John, I'll start with you, and then I'll ask Kevin. So, John, please. Well, caregiver support is certainly critical to everything we do. There's many people who, even when they're not nursing home eligible, are able to be successful because they have family support. So assuming the the, consum- the member is willing, um, then we try to, and the family member is willing, we want to involve family members in planning transitions of care from inpatient to home, mm-hmm. in planning the services in the home, and planning for home care, and making sure those, those services are all aligned. Some families are relieved to have help. Some families are desperate for help, um, and some families don't want it at all. So it's like everything else, there's a pretty big range of what people want and what works for them. Right. Uh, Kevin, uh, help me understand how you're dealing with the, the family caregiver itself themselves. Yeah, so in two ways. One is... Um, if the family uh, needs support, uh, we can actually put in what's called supportive home care and actually um, if, actually have um, individuals come in to help the individual with cooking, cleaning, um, paying bills, etc. And we can actually allocate hours uh, to do those tasks on behalf of the individual and their family. Mm-hmm. The other thing we can do is, and this is true in, in some states uh, in the United States, we can actually um, have the uh, caregiver or friends of the individual who is uh, a member of our organization, we can actually uh, pay them a wage uh, to become a a self-directed support of the individual. And then they can do uh, work on behalf of the individual to, uh, for example, pay the bills, mow the lawn, uh, clear snow, um, off the driveway or or the sidewalks, et cetera. So that's all social determinants of health, it sounds like. Exactly. Yeah, yeah interesting. Um, so uh, in, in general, um, when you're discharging these people to their home, which they prefer to be at, are they, are they alone or are they typically with somebody else uh, as they're going through their daily activities? John? You know, I think it's, kind of a, it's probably reasonably evenly split. A lot of people are alone. Um, yeah. People are older, and their families may have you know, moved away, their spouse has died, but there are a lot of people who are with or close to families as well. So right. the people who use a lot of the personal care assistance, the sort of the bathing, the dressing, the shopping, the snow shoveling, um, I think probably are a little bit more alone than people who, who have other sports around them. Yeah. Uh, Kevin? Yes, um, I would agree. So um, we do have a significant problem with social isolation. And and so for those people, uh, we actually may have uh, someone come in to visit them on uh, regular intervals. But then we also have a very large group of individuals who do have uh, many family around, and yet um, they need need, uh, supports in addition to having family because their family may have their own lives to live. So is a behavioral health uh, person in, involved also in kind of the care? Sometimes if it's social isolation, is that um, that's, that's probably one of the offerings I would guess. Is, is that right? Part of your programs? Yes? Yeah, yes, it definitely is right. There's, as Cheryl said earlier, I think, in the first half, that in our special needs population, the, um, about 60% of the enrollees are not seniors. They're people under, you know, adults with disabilities, and that group particularly very heavily influenced by both substance use disorder issues and mental health issues, in addition to other chronic medical conditions. Yeah, and and Kevin's just... also a key part of it. Yeah, Kevin, the same? Yeah, yeah. so... So one of the challenges we have is um, in, our, in, in some of our areas, we have uh, limited access to uh, licensed care here. So we have to supplement um, uh, some of our individuals' care with uh, peer groups and, and just, um, you know, potentially non-licensed individuals who are just there to, to help the individual, um, you know, just interact with, with people in the community. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm Jeff Foyt, and you're listening to Business of Healthcare. Today we're talking about dual eligibles, uh, Medicare and Medicaid-eligible population, which uh, consume a significant amount of our healthcare resources in the United States, and I'm talking with uh, two uh, uh, plans that actually are working with them rather successfully, Care Wisconsin, with Kevin Park, and then UPMC. Um, uh, uh, John, it's UPMC dual for you, or is it dual for life? Is is that... Uh, <laughs> The uh, special needs plan is called UPMC for Life Dual. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Yeah, so sorry, words wrong order. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. So, and, and John Lovelace, who is, is president of the government programs at UPMC uh, Medical Center. Um, so, how do you guys know that you're being successful? I mean, what 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 are you measuring? And 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 um, from a bottom line standpoint, you know, from a dollars and cents standpoint, how do you know that uh, this is actually working? Uh, John, I'm going to ask you first. There are two key things that pop to mind. One is is satisfaction, mm-hmm. family satisfaction, consumer satisfaction, provider satisfaction. Is this working better? Is this helping you? That sort of sort of. There's some formal measures of satisfaction as well as informal ones for providers and for consumers and for families. That's sort of one big element. Um, we have an advisory committees uh, around these programs. The advisory are consumer are members of the plan who, who wish to share their feelings. That's a source of more informal kind of anecdotal communication. Uh, and in terms of metrics, we're measuring um, quality measures, the standard um, national committee and quality assurance measures around quality, as well as the ratio of planned to unplanned health care. The unplanned health care being un- unnecessary emergency visits, crisis services, detoxes. The people with chronic conditions, we hope when things are going well, um, it means a lot of health care, but it's, it's planned as part of a treatment plan. When people are using things like ERs a lot, um, that's an indication that their health care is not being managed very well. So those are key metrics for us. Right. So we have, we have a caller from uh, New Jersey. Uh, it's uh, Chad. Chad, you on the line? You there, Chad? Hello? Hello, Ch- Chad? Chad from New Jersey? No? Okay, he's not there. Okay. All right, so let, let, let's get back. Uh, so, Kevin, um, let's talk about how, how you're measuring success and how do you know you're on the right track. Yeah, so um, a similar comment. So the the first and more traditional way is looking at um, our, our the impact of addressing um, our programs, you know, based on um, avoidable hospitalizations and ER visits, and you know we have made significant impacts on that. We also, um, like UPMC, have a very good star rating, which is a standard metric of overall quality. We're at four and a half stars, which is very good for our population out of five. Um, but then also, um, like UPMC, we we look at customer satisfaction and our uh, satisfaction scores both both in terms of serving uh, individuals as well as our provider network as well as our the industry wide metric of uh, of customer satisfaction, our scores are very high as well. Right. And so all of those uh, indicate that we're doing uh, a good job of outreach. We're reaching people, we're, we're meeting their needs, and we're also making a difference in terms of health care. Great. So we do have a call. I think we have this person on the line now, Chad from New Jersey. Are you there, Chad? Yes, yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Great, great, uh, great show. And uh, just a question: There seems to be an awful lot of labor involved uh, from a lot of parts of a lot of different folks, um, making sure that uh, these folks in their home um, have a good experience. Could, could you just uh, spend a minute and talk about the tools that the case user, uh, the case managers, and others use with the with the consumers to, to kind of help them do their job, and whether you see these tools, uh, you know, evolving and changing? having some impact on how they do their jobs and in some cases maybe even replace them and are they consumer facing at all what's the interaction that maybe um some of the people that are being cared for have with with technology uh as it moves along i'd love to hear your answers yeah so so john you want to start with that um sure we have a, a series of tools we use um clinically we try to have everyone who enrolls uh, complete a health risk assessment, which is a standardized instrument that we have developed with some consultation 
for enrollees, which is done at enrollment and then at least at every year, at least a year uh, interval. If there are changes in person's condition, we do it more often. So that's, sort of, that's really an assessment of how do you feel about your something? How do you feel about your health? Do you have trouble ambulating and so forth? Um, that's, that's one standard measure. We have a lot of data analytics that we use to comb through medical records to healthcare managers that identify people who have risk factors that perhaps we wouldn't otherwise see. Like someone's had three ER visits in the last month, or they've stopped taking their medicine, or they've started two medicines that conflict. These that come from the clinical data. And then in, the, in home services and nursing facility services, we use a, a very detailed, Pennsylvania requires we do actually, a very detailed functional assessment that's done in the home with the person and their family if they have one around practical daily living activities. Do you need help going to the bathroom? Or do you have trouble with incontinence? What would you like help with? It's kind of some closed-ended questions, like yes, no's, and then some what do you need to help you with? And those that's compiled, and all those things are compiled into various sorts of treatment plans. Okay. So we have about uh, th- f- about one minute left, Kevin, if you can answer that question, and then we're going to have to go to a break, uh, unfortunately. So please go. Yeah, so let me cover the second half of the question, which is um, we we do use a similar process to what John described. And so um, let me ask the, answer the second half, which is could, could some of these tools be used by the consumer? Uh, I would say uh, yes, and um, given the uh, physical and mental limitations of many of our population, uh, that would be the major challenge to having the consumers uh, use many of the tools that, um, at least in, in the population that we serve, um, many of them have functional limitations that, that would prevent um, you know, them from actually filling out the tool themselves. Uh, some of them do have caregivers who can fill out the tools, but but you know, in at least in uh, the population care Wisconsin serves, I would say about 80% would have some limitation that would prevent them from filling out the tools accurately. Right. So we're unfortunately, uh, Chad. By the way, thanks for the question. We're unfortunately going to have to end the show, and I wanted to thank our guests today. Kevin Parks, Chief Medical Officer at CARE Wisconsin, and John Lovelace, President UPMC for Life Dual. Is that right? Or Dual Life? Yes. Mm-hmm. Life Dual. Okay, got it. Um, you've been listening to the Business of Healthcare uh, on Sirius XM 111. Uh, this program will replay several times over the next four days and is available on demand for subscribers. The replay dates are Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of this week. I'm Jeff Voigt, one of the hosts. If you have any questions or an idea for a segment, please write us. Uh, or, or at our email at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And remember us to f- uh, remember to follow us on twiz- uh, Twitter at bizradio111. I want to thank Brian Drew, our producer. I think he's going to. this is his last show for me, and nice job, Brian. I really appreciate everything you've done. I also want to thank Dion Simpkins, uh, the sound engineer today, for, their to- uh, for his time as well. Have a great day, uh, and um, uh, stay well. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.